Hello Elevation, it's good to be with you in this online space this morning. What we've just heard, well, it comes from the third chapter of a letter found in the New Testament, written by a well-known and well-traveled church leader named Paul to one of his protégés, Titus, who is pastoring and serving on the island of Crete off the coast of Greece. Now, most of what I said just now was true, but one piece wasn't. Uh, it is officially chapter three of Titus, but it's important for us to understand that this was a letter. And when Paul was writing a letter, he didn't put it in chapters. It's a good thing that I think that the Bible is broken into chapters and verses. It helps us take things in smaller bites. We modern folks, we like to consume our media in small chunks, don't we? Uh, think about it. Last time someone sent you an article, what's the first thing you do? Well, Probably the first thing you do is actually look for the title of the article to see if it's interesting. But then the next thing you do is you go over to the side of the screen and you check that little scroll bar to see just how long the article is. Do you really want to invest the time? Or maybe you're scrolling through videos on YouTube and you see this great video of this little helicopter taking off on Mars and you think, oh, I want to watch that. And you find out it's only 57 seconds long. Well, that's like a sure thing. That takes up hardly any time at all. So you go for it. But then someone sends you this other video and it looks really interesting too. It's about what would happen if you got locked in a super store, in a shopping store, and the only thing that you could eat were the things that were actually already in that grocery store. Um, how long could you survive? Now that sounds really interesting, but you look at the little timeline on the bottom and it tells you it's almost 15 minutes long. And so you're not sure that you really want to invest that much time and energy. After all, you've got a busy day, but then again, you're working from home. No one's really looking over your shoulder. So you probably go ahead and watch it. But in normal times, you might not take 15 minutes to watch a video on how long you could survive if you got locked in a grocery store. So by breaking down the Bible into chapters and verses, it helps us take a look at things in smaller chunks. And so that's what we've been doing over the course of the last few weeks. Chapter one of this little letter to Titus lays out Titus' primary tasks, which were to appoint new leaders in the church and confront those who were corrupting the community. Chapter two then emphasizes the importance of teaching that leads people into a way of life that leaves people outside the church with nothing bad to say about Jesus' followers. The third chapter then, where we're going today, goes one step further, exploring a Christian's place in the broader culture and how faithfulness to Jesus ends up being profitable for everyone inside and out of the church. And so as we wrap up this little series, I want us to remember Kristen's advice from last week, that these words written, weren't written to us, but they were written for us. So let's keep that in mind. We'll start with the first couple of verses of chapter three. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle toward everyone. It's pretty amazing how contemporary a 2,000-year-old letter can sound. I mean, think about it. Would it be an exaggeration to suggest that some of the key questions of 2020 and 2021 have been around what it means for citizens to be subject to rulers and authorities? Think of it. Those are some of the questions that our culture is asking and exploring. Now, we live in a different world than the world in which Titus received this letter. But ours is also a world where it's important for us to ask questions about how followers of Jesus should live their lives in the public sphere. These scattered Christian enclaves on the island of Crete would have been a significant minority. And yet here is Paul desiring to see them represent Jesus to the majority culture. Now, practically speaking, if you think about it, that was only gonna be possible if there was a noticeable difference between their lives and the lives of the people around them. 
the thing that came to mind was paper towel commercials. Have you ever noticed that they're all the same? It doesn't matter what brand they're advertising, they're all the same. The way the paper towel commercial goes is that you have two different towels, someone spills something on the kitchen table and you use the advertised brand and then the leading brand. And then those towels, they scoop across the table. The advertised brand soaks up every last drop of the liquid while the other one, it just kind of turns into this mess and there's a big streak of liquid still left on the table. Because of course, the only one that way that anyone's gonna buy your product is they know that it's different and better than the other product put beside it. The only way that anyone is gonna buy Christian faith is if it makes a difference. And so sometimes, admittedly, Paul would write to a church condemning how much they looked like the world around them. Like this is a problem, people. And actually, in one occasion at least, how they looked worse than the world around them. In his letter to the Corinthian church, church chapter five, verse one, Paul writes, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. Like he can't even get his head around this. And of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. He can't get his head around this because he believes and knows that the only way to make an impact in the world around you is to live in a way that is different and appealing. Now, in this letter, while Paul did challenge Titus to up the ante, calling people to a higher standard, he also wanted them to remember where they had come from, lest any of them get an idea that they were somehow holier than thou. Um, so Titus was, remind, was called to remind the Cretan believers that whatever evil they find in the world around them, they were once steeped in the very same stuff themselves. Disobedient, deceived, enslaved to their pleasures, full of malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. It's a pretty intense list, and it's a reminder that the church is never just for the squeaky clean. But Paul continues, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Now these people had experienced significant and often radical change in their attitudes and behaviors, what Paul calls a renewal or a rebirth. A few weeks ago, I had a marriage prep session with a couple. Um, and as we were talking about this, they um, would be very interested in faith and exploring faith, but they're, they're kind of young and early in the journey. And so they got a lot of questions. And one of the things that they asked as we were talking about faith in the context of the session was uh, one of them had referred to, I think his mother or his aunt being born again. And he says, I'm not even sure what this being born again means. And so we had a good talk about it. And at least part of what it means according to this letter is that when God's mercy collides with our mess of a life, something new and beautiful and hopeful emerges. We are born again. We get to start life over again spiritually. Now that's both a one and done collision and a day in, day out re-collision of mess and mercy as we invite God to continually renew our weary and wandering minds, bodies, and souls. So there's this change that comes about in the lives of followers of Jesus. The chapter heading in my Bible says, saved in order to do good. Now this is, I think, is beautiful. Of course, there were no chapter headings in the original text in Paul's letter, but I think it helps us remember what is really happening in Titus chapter three. So yes, you were once like this, you've been saved, you've been given this rebirth, this renewal, but you are saved in order to do good. It's like Paul saying, Titus, Jesus has done something significant in the lives of the people you're leading, but it's not only for their benefit, but for the benefit of the people and the world around them. 
This is what he writes in verse 8. I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. And it's this last line that I want us to focus in on today. Our calling to devote ourselves to a way of life that is excellent and profitable for everyone. Miroslav Volf writes, to live as a Christian means to keep inserting a difference into a given culture without ever stepping outside that culture to do so. There's a great example uh, in the Old Testament book of Daniel of someone who was able to do this. So the context is that the city of Jerusalem, the, the center of the Hebrew way of life, had just fallen to the Babylonians when four young Hebrew men, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, were chosen to enter into the king's service. Now, that was this, this was a big deal. Uh, the passage tells us that there was a three-year process of training and kind of education, getting them ready to serve the king. Now, you're familiar with the name Daniel, if you've been around church at all. It's a, he's a pretty popular person in the Old Testament. Uh, but those other names, you're probably like, who are these guys? If I told you their other names, you might recognize them. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You see, one of the first things that happened when this group of four young men were brought from Jerusalem into Babylon was that their names were changed. They were given new names. Now, I want you to think about that. Imagine having your name changed. Just all of a sudden, you have a new name and no one is calling you by your old name anymore. This is a pretty big sacrifice, a pretty big compromise for these people living in a foreign land. But I think there's something beautiful about this in what it illustrates what we're talking about today. They were willing to have their names changed to fit in with the culture around them, but they were not willing to compromise their faith. And this is what it looks like to live as people of faith in a world that often doesn't share the same beliefs, values, and priorities. We learn the difference between hanging on to the things that must be hung on to and letting go of the things that maybe while difficult, we can let go of. So this is what happens. As they're in this process of training, they're having their names changed, Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. The Hebrews had a number of different restrictions that would have affected their diet. And so the, the idea of just eating whatever food and drink was offered to them in this king's court, it just would have been violating their faith every single day. So Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, they come up with another plan. They say, listen, just give us a vegetarian diet, only vegetables and only water to drink, and we will be fine. So that's what happens. And this is the result. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. So not only were these young men able to survive in the midst of Babylonian culture while holding on to their Hebrew identity and faith, they absolutely thrived. And so did the nation. Now don't miss this part. That's a really important part. This wasn't even their nation. This was a foreign nation, the nation that had conquered them. But they were able to live their lives out in a way that enabled not only them to thrive, but all of the world around them as well. God will use faithful people to be a blessing wherever they live. Now, Miroslav Volf wrote a book called The Public Faith, and he explored how Christians are to bring their faith into the public sphere. And he talked about a couple of ways that we get this wrong, and one way that he suggests is the best way to approach this. 
The first thing he says is no to total transformation. The idea that we are going to transform the nation of Canada into a Christian nation that abides by all of God's laws and values, well, that's just not going to happen. So he says that's not what we should be focused on. He also says no to accommodation. This is the idea that we just say, you know what, whatever goes, whatever our government, whatever our cultural elites, whatever the ideologues around us are saying or believing or doing or valuing, we will just adopt all the same things and we will adjust our lives according to what's going on in the world around us. He says, no, we shouldn't be taking that approach either. What we should do is say yes to engagement. That like Daniel and his friends, we say we are going to live out our faith in a way that is meaningful to us and we're gonna do that in the public sphere. We are going to engage our faith in that public place for the good of the community as a whole. So in Daniel chapter six, verse three, we read that Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. That's what happened to someone who decided to put their faith at the center, but also live it out in the midst of the world around him. Now, Honestly, we can't ignore the fact that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into a fiery furnace, or that Daniel was tossed into a den of lions. In both cases, for those of you who haven't read the stories before, they were miraculously spared. Happy endings. But whatever ill treatment they received was disconnected from the good work that they were doing and the kind of people they were. We read about this in Daniel 6, verses 4 and 5. The administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel. Now, this last line of this passage, it reminds me of another New Testament letter, this one written by Peter. This is what he writes. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Peter goes on to say that Jesus' followers should live in such a way that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Now there's no denying it. Some Christians do a fantastic job earning accusations and slander. There are all kinds of stories of people failing publicly or saying or doing ridiculous things and people look and say that's what Christians are like and they kind of earn that. We've all read the posts, we've watched the videos, we've heard the stories. And for some people, unfortunately, that's reason enough to toss Christian faith out altogether, to abandon the idea that followers of this first century Jewish rabbi have anything significant to offer our world. But Peter's claim is that there's a way to live where this kind of response doesn't hold up. That the criticisms about what other Christians do or the criticisms about the shortcomings of certain ideas where they fall short because of the way of life of Jesus' followers. I'll give you another example. Fast forward from Daniel's time a few centuries to St. Augustine, who was a 4th century North African bishop, one of the most influential voices in the development of the Christian faith in the early church. But he wasn't always a bishop. And in fact, he wasn't always a believer. But an encounter with a man named Ambrose, who was both a believer and a bishop, altered Augustine's path forever. I want to read a section that comes from Jamie Smith's book, On the Road with St. Augustine. This is about the encounter and the impact that Ambrose had on Augustine's life. Smith writes, It's not that Augustine immediately comes to affirm the faith 
Rather, Ambrose's kindness and hospitality to a precocious outsider was the effective condition for him to reconsider the faith he'd spurned. Augustine writes, I fell in love with him as it were, not at first as a teacher of the truth, as I had no hope for that whatsoever in your church, but simply as a person who was kind to me. Smith continues, it's not that he immediately comes to believe, but that Christianity becomes more and more believable. Augustine continues, though now I hadn't yet verified that the church was teaching the truth, it was plainly not teaching what I'd so obnoxiously accused it of teaching. I love this passage because it's an example of what someone who decides to live a good life in the name of Jesus can do and the kind of impact it can have on the people around us. Ambrose lived a life that pointed beyond itself and that stood above criticism, much like the life Daniel lived in the midst of his Babylonian contemporaries and like the life both Paul and Peter encouraged early church communities to live in full view of their neighbors. Jamie Smith has this great line. He says, sometimes plausibility is pegged to a person. What he means by this is that sometimes the thing that's going to open someone up to the possibility of Christian faith being true is the way you live your life in relation to them. Now, the other day, uh, Owen's phone plan, my son Owen's phone plan expired. And so he was kind of in line to get a new phone to replace his older one. So he set the order online and was eagerly waiting in the mail. And of course, from time to time, you hear the ring on the doorbell and go and it would be some other package arriving. Um, but just recently, the doorbell rang and lo and behold, uh, it's not a delivery service at the door, but it's our neighbor. And on the step in front of me, I had, it was the one who answered the door. There's an open box. And I, my neighbor says, uh, sorry, I opened it. I didn't actually look at the label. I mean, I, the label, I thought it was a package for me. Um, he said, I was actually thinking about keeping this one. You see, the thing is, uh, our street is Waterton Drive. Our neighbor's street is Waterton Court. And our houses have the same number. It's really confusing. We get each other's mail all the time. We get deliveries to each other's house regularly. And in this case, he got a delivery to his house, which happened to be a new iPhone. Now, there is a situation in which someone could have just thought, I'm going to keep this brand new phone and no one will ever know the difference. And I said to Owen, I said, isn't it a great thing that we have like trustworthy neighbors around us? Being a good neighbor to the people around us is something that is just essential in the Christian faith. This is what Paul writes in Titus 3 verse 14. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. Paul repeats the same phrase word for word that he's already written, devote themselves to doing what is good. He's emphasizing it because he wants us to really get this. It seems that what Paul's suggesting is that Christians should be kind of the ideal citizens. Now, maybe a decade or so ago, there was an article in our local paper asking for people to join and be a part of what would become the Waterloo Park Master Plan Task Force. It's a mouthful. Uh, I showed up at this meeting and signed up to be a part of this team. And I remember the first meeting as we were going around this, the table and everyone's introducing themselves. I realized as we were going around that everyone at this table was there representing some kind of organization. They had some kind of an interest in this park and that's why they were part of this committee. And then it got to me and I was like, well, um, I'm actually just a citizen here. And it was kind of funny because the reaction of people was like, why would you be doing this if you're not like, don't have some kind of vested interest in this? Uh, now, listen, I want to say 
There are lots of people doing great work in our community who don't have a vested interest, of course. But that always struck me because I thought, isn't that just the kind of thing that people should be doing? Again, from Miroslav Volf, he writes, a faith that does not seek to mend the world is a seriously malfunctioning faith. Now, of course, you do not have to be a follower of Jesus to make your community a better place, obviously. But... If you happen to be a follower of Jesus, you have to make your community a better place. I mean, this is part of what Paul's getting at. He's trying to tell Titus, we need to devote ourselves to doing what is good. We need to live in a way that is excellent and profitable for everyone. Now, a couple of weeks ago, as I was talking about chapter one, I read from Matthew chapter five, Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. And I knew at the time that I would have to read them again this week as well, because I don't know that there's anything that encapsulates this idea more clearly than Jesus' words. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. We are invited to take our lives and put them on display for the good of the community around us. There's this paragraph in Peter Bach's book, The Answer to How is Yes, that is really captivating to me. He writes, citizenship means that I act as if this larger place were mine to create, while the conventional wisdom is that I cannot have responsibility without authority. That is a tired idea, let it die in peace. I am responsible for the health of the institution and the community, even though I do not control it. I can participate in creating something I do not control. And that's a good thing for all of us. Think about the people we've looked at so far today. To start with, Daniel had no control at all. He had no influence, zero, but he brought his faithful way of life to the service of community and the nation was all the better for it. The Cretan believers, were a small minority with essentially no influence at all. But Titus was to remind them that even they could bring their faith to bear on the wider culture. Wolf refers to Christian faith as an instrument of God for the sake of human flourishing. That this faith that we're trying to grow in, that we're trying to live out, it is an instrument that God uses for the benefit of human flourishing across the board. And since I'm been writing the sermon over Earth Day, I think it's maybe important to expand that for the sake of not only human flourishing, but the flourishing of the rest of the created world of which we humans share. So there are some questions that we can ask ourselves, that we should ask ourselves. What is your place in this broader picture, in our culture? What is your part? What will your contribution be? If we follow Paul's trajectory through the letter, we find him talking to Titus about the importance of finding faithful leaders who will guide people into a way of living that is beneficial to their households, to their churches, and to the world around them. They, like us, are encouraged to reject what was corrupt about the culture around them and embrace what was good, always seeking the common good. And this alone is the way that we can truly influence whatever culture we're a part of, our Babylon, our Crete, our KW. Let us pray. Lord, we're grateful that you would think of us, just people like us, as the light of the world. It's hard to even wrap our heads around. 
but you tell us that we should take this light and we should put it out on display and bring light to everyone around us. And so God, we want to take that and we want to try to embrace it, to try to find this balance between holding on to our faith, but living out in the world around us. Help us to be those kinds of people like Paul wanted the Cretan believers to be, people who could do good, people who could live in a way that was beneficial to everyone around them. Give us this vision, expand our ideas of what it can look like to live faithfully in our world. Go with us, we pray in Christ's name, amen. As we do each week, we set some time aside to reconnect with one another and catch up on the week and dive into some discussion about this morning's theme. We do that in the context of neighbors groups. Many of you are already connected and I encourage you to hop on those shortly. For those of you who might be just visiting us or you've never joined in a neighbors group this morning, there'll be a link in the comment section right now. And if you click on that, you'll be invited to join a conversation for the next little while about this morning's theme. Peace to you.